There was somebody out on the streets that was kidnapping and violating little kids, and I was another victim. And I remember them asking my mom if they could please sit down with me and show me books of people, suspects, that it could possibly be just to help them and that they're gonna protect me. And I kept on thinking, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna be a strong little girl and help and, and do what I can. Really wanted to help these police officers stop this bad man. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Welcome back to See One Beautiful Soul. I am Barbara Heller. Today we're speaking with Jennifer Gallegos, a survivor, a leader in her community, in her family. She has survived so many horrific, challenging moments, which you will hear I want to warn you that there are some very challenging images that may come up in her story. We don't do a lot of processing of her story in this particular episode, but I think just hearing her speak the words out and how she survived and how she saved someone in particular will bring tears to your heart and your eyes and hopefully help you to believe in the power of the human spirit and how we can really overcome major horrific challenges if, God forbid, we are tested with them. I think that this episode, like the last one, brings up sexual promiscuity and how we look at intimacy. I am of the belief that it is so imperative that we all find healthy ways to express our love uh, intimate moments, and we get to decide what that is. As you listen to her story, please think about someone who may be going through a challenging time right now in this particular area of their life. And if they need help, maybe lend an ear. See if you have the courage to ask certain questions like, do you think this is the healthiest way for you to be expressing yourself? If you know someone who has a job that could be dangerous to themselves or to someone else, I hope that this episode will inspire you to have a conversation with them and just speak with them heart to heart. Ask them, is there anything I can do to help you create a new opportunity for yourself? Is there a way that I could help you create and foster a new community in your life so that you don't feel so isolated. Very often we know of someone struggling, but we may not reach out and go out of our way to just sit down and have one conversation, one intimate conversation, asking questions like, do you feel alone? Is there a way that I could help you find a job? And sometimes just one conversation can change an entire person's life. So Thank you for being here. If you think you might know someone who unfortunately is involved with human trafficking in any way, please dial 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. You can also go to the Human Trafficking Legal Center at htlegalcenter.org. Jennifer Gallegos, so good to see you. 
when we met on Clubhouse in one of my rooms, I had no idea what I was about to experience. Uh, I put up a room. I was like, I want to talk about human trafficking. And I thought like maybe one person would show up. And I feel like you were the magic sauce, like when you got there and you just started talking. I think we did that room three or four times and you just kept showing up and we did not know each other at all. By the second one, I felt like you were one of my closest friends. Born <laughs> with a, a magical cape on her back. And I just, I still see you that way as like a superhero that's just walking in our midst. I feel like we're all our own superheroes. But there's like a few people I've met in my life, I could just put them in my hand, lifted buildings with their hands. And I mean, now you work in construction. But anyway, I think your story speaks for itself in the way that you tell it. If you could start from the beginning and just tell us your story and then we'll we'll unpack it. Welcome. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for having me today. Being on the clubhouse and at the beginning, everything was like very business oriented for me. You know, there's always a part of me that's more spiritual and I want to find something else. And while I'm going through, I see the title of your, you know, your clubhouse because obviously I have my knowledge and experience of what I've been through and what I've seen, but we're hearing people that have gone through completely different aspects of the human and sex trafficking. It was great to get all that knowledge, but it also gave me a sense of it's okay to share my story a little bit more. You go through the trauma, you go through the stages of getting over the trauma and you release it, but it's almost like you don't want to continuously talk about it and be the victim. So most people just don't talk about it at all, you know, and it's not about reliving it as a victim. It's maybe about sharing your story. Somebody else can hear it and now feel strong enough to either get out of their situation or feel strong enough to let go of that trauma that they have never been able to let go of. People that were coming in as they're sharing their stories, they were just as healing to me as it had to have been for them at those moments. This is definitely why I agreed to come on today. I want to share my story. Hopefully some child, some young adult, some young lady, or even a young boy, because I know a lot of the times we're thinking about sex or human trafficking and it's always directed at girls, which is not the reality. It's, it's everybody. Nobody is left untouched, unfortunately. I so value that you will honor me and our listeners with this story today and just sharing of yourself. And not only is it okay for you to share your story, I really think it's necessary. What's so fascinating about you is that you're so strong and you're an entrepreneur and you know we're gonna get into how successful you are and powerful. There are a lot of people walking around today who maybe haven't experienced exactly the same thing. I don't think anyone in the world has the way that you have, but they may be experiencing a shadow or a shade of what you went through. And they have to put up this strong face all the time. And so there's a part of them that doesn't want to admit that that happened or is happening or maybe is about to happen because they're in sort of like a funk or a, a slump or some sort of bad habit. We learned that all of these trafficking things that happened came from bad habits. It was just one on top of the other. It was a choice and then another choice. And then by the, oh, now I'm this, I'm this part of that cycle of violence. But I think what happened to you, which was so cool for me to experience, because I am a creativity coach and I help people tell their story. I just hold up a mirror in a loving way. But I was like, how has this not become a movie yet? <laughs> because it's so movie worthy or novel or story or historical fiction, something that gets people to go, oh my gosh, like even if part of this is true, wow, like how can I? And I think what drew you into the room is similar to this podcast. 
it's not about just like voyeuring and going, ooh, what an interesting story. It's not for entertainment purposes. Everything we do that you and I both do in the world, but also this podcast and also all of my my clubhouse, even my comedy on clubhouse is geared towards how can I make a difference? So the title wasn't just, let's talk about human trafficking. It was human trafficking colon, how can each of us make a difference? And I think that brought a lot of people in because we, we tend to think, I don't know anyone who's living in a basement, like the mole girl, three girls in Ohio that were, were stuck in, in that house, you know, which uh, Kimmy Schmidt was based off of actually. Each of us knows someone who's been affected by this. So let's get into it. I'm so happy that you're here. Even if this reaches one person who needed to hear it, you're adding to your superhero. Now. Let's dive in. Tell us from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> when I was four years old, I was actually kidnapped and abducted. Um, I was molested and then released. Um, but during the trauma, you know, I was pretty much told, I can't tell anybody. I can't tell the police, um, that the person knew where I lived and where my family lived and that they would kill my family if I ever spoke out. And, you know, I was technically still a baby at that time, you know, a, a toddler pretty much. And having to, you know, remember that I was scared out of my mind, mind you, before everything happened, um, I was playing hide and go seek with my brother and my friends in the neighborhood, you know, so just the normal little kid hanging out and then poof, you know, I'm being taken by somebody that's telling me that they know my family and they know my mom and dad and they're going to help me get back home. And it didn't turn out like that. Once all the trauma passed and I finally made it back to my family, I remember, you know, everybody, the sense of grief and and going through everything and, and them taking me over to the police station. And at four years old, being sat down and being explained what just happened, that there was somebody out on the streets that was kidnapping and violating little kids. And I was another victim. And I remember them asking my mom if they could please sit down with me and show me books of people, suspects, that it could possibly be. Four years old, sitting down, having them record my statement and having them look through all these books of people that to me, they just looked like monsters. As a little kid, I was just scared. And then asking me questions if I could remember how he looked. And I kept on thinking that if I was just another victim, then that means that there were going to be more. And I needed to do the best that I can do as a four-year-old little kid to try to tell them anything that I remembered about this person because I didn't want any other little kid to go through what I went through. Okay, hold on one so, second. Where was this? <laughs> this was in Florida? This was here in Florida um, in Margate. The, and did you know the person? No. But they were following you enough because they knew your family and they, or they just said, I know your family. They just said that. So obviously they, they targeted a complex that had a lot of kids outdoors and they just said it to scare me. And at four years old, I'm going to believe whatever a grown adult is telling me. And how long were you taken for? Um, I was taken for 24 hours. And then they brought you back home. Then they told me that they were going to leave. And once they left... I could walk out of where I was at. And it was... So I was left in a back room. They closed the door. They gave me a time limit, very set instructions, and told me that once I didn't hear anybody anymore, that I was free to leave. And when I walked out of where I was at, I was actually in a empty apartment that was in the same complex that I lived in. So I wasn't far from my house. 
but I didn't know that. Four years old, I got to wander outside of this apartment and run back to my family that obviously was searching for me. The police were searching for me and just scared, you know, and not knowing what just happened or how to even explain this to them that I was, I was missed. I didn't know at that time that I was even going to make it back home to my family. I just knew that there was a stranger that I was with and I was being hurt. And you were four years old. And what do you think gave you that awareness? I don't know many other little kids that age that would say, I have to pick out this person. I have to find this person so that it doesn't happen to someone else. I wanted to be a strong little girl, and that's what my mom kept on telling me. Even the police officers would remind me that I'm helping other kids just to help them and that they're going to protect me. And I kept on thinking, I'm going to help. I'm going to be a strong little girl and help and, and do what I can. really wanted to help these police officers stop this bad man, however I had to do it. Then just remembering everything that I possibly could about him, what he told me, what he looked like. I remember them asking me, did he have any markings on him? Was there anything, you know, special about him that you you would remember his clothes? And I just kept on telling them more and more about what I could remember. Obviously at four years old, you're trying to, you're, you're learning how to speak still. So the vocabulary is not even there. But a few days after everything, they were able to capture him and they were able to charge him with all the kidnappings and rapes of all these other kids from the neighborhood. I think that just being that young and knowing that I helped let me continue to live my life as a kid. But it definitely was scary and traumatic. And I didn't trust myself around a lot of people for a very long time. With kids that are going through this, obviously, the trust in adults is being taken from them. It's the trust that they're not safe when they walk outside of their house. The, the trust that they're not safe playing in the park or in front of their neighborhood, they're not safe. And that is a scary idea. But I was able to continue. You know, I had my older brother and he was always with me. And even that was a healing because at the beginning, my brother is four years older than me. And he almost felt like he let me down because we played hide and go seek and everybody went the opposite way and he left me alone. And I remember that when I ran home, the first person I saw was my brother, you know, at seven years old, looking for me. So we've always been close, but it was really hard. Trauma like that doesn't affect just the child, it affects the entire family. My mother and father thinking that they couldn't protect and that I was hurt. And now I'm not damaged, but now I'm traumatized. I remember looking at my mom and my dad's face and it looked like they just wanted the the earth to just open up and swallow them because they didn't know how to console me or what to even do. Little bit by little bit, we got through it and life just kept on progressing as everything happens. You know, we go through trauma and it's a uh, period of adjustment. And then we continue to live with life and, and go on. And unfortunately for me, That was just the beginning of the traumas that I would endure in life. But I think that each and every trauma wind up making me stronger. Unfortunately, a few years after that, just around uh, seven or eight years old, I was then molested by a uncle in my family. We had just lost my mother's brother. It was very traumatizing. He was very close to all of us. And we had a lot of family around during the funeral time. He could not control himself. Was this your mother's other brother? Like he no. had lost a brother? So he's a great uncle. I was his little doll and made me very uncomfortable. And I knew that it was not okay. 
you know, and going through what I had already went through, I knew that it was not okay. I instantly like removed myself from it and I got very awkward and I got very quiet. And I remember my family thinking a lot of times, like, why is she sitting by herself? And, you know, why isn't she with the family? And I just did not want to get close to anybody, you know, because I was so scared to say anything because now this is in, you know, the family. And how do you say something that I know is going to hurt so many people? And I decided- Occurrence or did he do it over and over again? No, he, it was at one occurrence. And I mean, I instantly pulled away and like got to a safe place and from there just started getting very isolated. Um, and then maybe a couple of, I think it was like a week into, you know, after everything happened that I decided that I needed to say something. I needed somebody to know because I wasn't safe. I needed to make sure that I had an adult that actually loved me and was going to protect me. And I actually spoke with my stepdad because he was not part of my family, you know, part of that family. And I knew that if I told him that he would believe me and he would take care of me. And I sat down with him and I explained to him what happened. And I remember instantly him saying, this is not right. We're going to do something about this right now. He sat my mom down and he explained to her what happened. And obviously that was a shock to her. And from there, it was again, back in the police station, you know, sharing my story once again and going through all the trauma again. And I just kept thinking that if it was okay for him to do it to me, then who else in my family has he done this? It, it came out to be true that there were other little cousins that he had done the same thing to in the past. And I knew that I was going to be isolated from my family because this is not something that is easily understood throughout the family. How many times have we heard of people going through this and it being generations that stay quiet because the burden of actually saying what's going on and speaking up is too hard emotionally to deal with that people rather close their eyes and shut their ears and pretend like nothing's going on, hoping that it will just stop. Um, but that hope, all that it does is lead to generations that are traumatized, generations of children that are now going to grow up not trusting people, you know, not trusting themselves, not feeling comfortable in emotional or even being able to connect with people. Because how do you really connect with people and, and be vulnerable if that is being taken away from you before you even have the decision to make these connections? So it, it was really hard. And we did for a while go through feeling isolated and, you know, and just healing from all that stuff. There's a reason why it's called violate. I'm a child of, thank God, not sexual abuse, but uh, I've just learned this term recently, incestual intimacy, like emotional intimacy. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I could feel it like in the car, driving places with both of my parents. I heard a rabbi say recently, Rabbi Chase Taub said, children should feel like you are their best friend. He was talking to parents, but not the other way around. They shouldn't feel like they're your best friend. You have to make them feel comfortable and that they can tell you anything so that you can keep them safe and protect them. But you should never unload on them or parentify them or make them feel as if it's their responsibility to make you feel good. And both of my parents did that to me. And I always knew there was emotional abuse and verbal abuse. And my parents also fought physically in front of each other. But I think that's why we connected immediately because... 
my whole childhood was that. And I know I'm not alone. I think there, as we grow at God willing, as a society, go back and forth. Now, kids between the ages of zero and four know what twerking is. And to me, that's so gross. I didn't have twerking. I didn't look at screens watching people in the last year than I've ever wanted to see just by opening up Instagram. We're so desensitized to it. It's like, oh, cool. I get to see the back of this woman's butt and her. Why is that cool? That's not, it's not funny. Or she does it better. Who did it better? You know, and families dancing together in this way and showing off that area. (laughs) At the same time, we have all these terms now. And we can talk about abuse in a new way that we I didn't growing up. So I think we go back and forth, but there's a bunch of TED Talks right now about how we just have to kind of understand pedophilia and that we should normalize it a little bit. We can't have all these people in jails because of, you know, one or two or three inferences. How does that make you feel? Um, uh, a criminal and a monster are just that. And I understand that their mental issues, right? Their their impulses. It's a disease that they have. Over the years, I've I've understood that more and more that they're sick. Um, but with that being said, if they're that sick, then they do not need to be in society. They need to be getting help. Whether it is that they are locked up in a correctional institution and they're away from society, or if they are in a you know mental facility getting the assistance. But if they know that they're sick and they're not looking for treatment and they go and commit a crime, then they need to be where criminals go. It's the same thing if somebody is a psychopath and they have tendencies to want to hurt and kill someone. It's a mental issue. And most of those people aren't going to go and get help. It's going to be to the point where they break and then they go and harm somebody and they get locked up and hopefully put away for the crimes that they have committed, have time to repent for what they do. Going through this at such a young age and being 35 now, the person that did this had since then been released, did house arrest. Even that, um, I remember receiving the letter when they were going to be released and going on to house arrest. I think I was maybe 12 getting the letter at home and it was just, you know, the, the court advising us that they had served their time and that they were going to be put on house arrest. I remember just a sinking feeling of they're going to be out. Are they going to be mad at me and come and look for me? I knew that regardless, my parents were with me and they were going to protect me. But as a kid, I immediately felt scared that they were back on the street and that now they were going to be upset at me, that I upset an adult and they were going to find me. Always checking my surroundings. That led to me being hyper aware of all of my surroundings, looking behind myself, uh, going to restaurants and not sitting with my back towards things, sitting with my back towards the wall. As a kid, you know, most kids walk into a place and they're oblivious. They just walk in and they're happy. And not me. I didn't have that comfort. Walked in as a kid and I was watching what was going on. And I was looking at adults and I was understanding and how they're talking to each other and how it made me feel. Everything was always thinking about my environment and how I could control it as a kid. Um, And that continued into becoming a teenager, engaging as a teenager with boys and and friends and going out and parties, starting off with such a raw beginning. As a teenager, I was already starting to spiral. I didn't trust anybody. I was not okay with authority. I was 
just trying to be a kid and do what I wanted to do. And and it was hard enough. My dad lived in Puerto Rico. And I lived at home with my mom and my stepdad. Everything made me unhappy. As much as I wanted to be a happy kid and have a normal life, it wasn't that way all the time. Pretty much a military household. So the focus on being great at school and graduating, going off to college and not being a bum. And then just the reality in my head of just feeling isolated and feeling alone and being a little bit heavy set, and then being made fun of because I was bigger and not looking like my family because all my family is super petite and healthy. And my stepdad was a bodybuilder buff. He worked out multiple times during the week. And here's this chunky little girl. And now I don't wear that. That's too tight. That's too short. Covering myself up. And here I am now dealing with the dilemma. Like, do I feel ashamed of my body? You know, do I cover up? Do I feel empowered by myself? And on top of everything else that I've already gone through, I just kept on uh, pushing back more and more as I became a teenager. And my dad passed away. Just talking about body image, do you think that you kept the weight on to protect yourself? No, I mean, I think I was just naturally, you know, the thick girl. I don't think I was overweight, like drastically, but on the chart, you go to the doctors, like the charts are just like, she's obese. And that's what they would tell me. They put me on the Atkins diet at like 14 years old. I remember taking salads and, and grilled chicken to lunch and sitting down next to everybody else. And they're all eating lunchable snacks. And here I am with my salad. It just became such an emphasis that I was so overweight and I couldn't understand. Like, I'm like, I'm just a kid. Everything was about what I was eating and how I looked and not dress a certain way. And that started playing a really big role in my life now, because as a girl, like you want to be cute. You want to wear things. I remember going to the fifth grade dance. And at that time, the little pixie strap dresses had just came out. I wanted to wear one too. My mom against everything still let me put one on. And I remember it being a big deal because here I was this chunky little girl with a little pixie strap dress on, and it didn't look the same way as all the other girls. You know, I was already uh, developing more than everybody else and it, it just didn't look the same. I remember just thinking this is what I wanted to wear and I was okay with it. But as I continued becoming a teenager and just hearing more and more about my weight and my weight and my weight and I'm like, like my weight's not everything. Got to a point where I was just like, I'm okay with my weight. If you're not okay with it, oh well. It just added on to my defiance that I was gonna be okay with who I was regardless of what anybody else wanted me to be or wanted me to look like or what they wanted me to do. And unfortunately, um, it was adults, you know, so I just became more and more defiant with adults because I, I had already a lack of trust for adults to begin with. As much as I loved my parents, they couldn't protect me in all the instances that they needed to protect me. Being told that I needed to be a certain way, I, it was just... I didn't want to. My mind was already shifting being a teenager that I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to dress how I want to dress. I'm going to act how I want to act. And if they don't like it, oh well. At some point, I'll become an adult and I'm going to live my own life. And it is what it is. Coasting through life like that. Then we get the trauma of my dad passing away at 16. And that sort of just put a, a dagger right through the little bit of the heart that I had left holding on and made me completely spiral because a person that was just to me my everything even though I didn't live with him he's gone I spent so many years trying to get to live with him and get to spend more time with him and I would go every summer my mom would make sure to send me every summer over there but I never felt like it was enough time even when I was there I didn't get to spend that much time with him my dad was a alcoholic and he would work 
and he would come home and see me for a little bit and then go out party. I remember being a little kid and waiting on the patio for my dad to get home at whatever time of the night or day he would get home, just so I can see a glimpse of his face. And even if it was just him saying hello to me and going into, you know, going to sleep. Um, but that was enough for me uh, because I loved him that much. And, you know, as an adult now, I know that living like that, yeah, it was hard. And, understanding that my dad was an alcoholic and that I really wasn't getting quality time with him and that as a parent he probably was not the best most responsible parent for me to have lived with and I understand that but as a child I lacked having my dad with me and then when he was gone it was too late and then I held the resentment that I didn't get the time that I needed with my dad and now I'm never going to have that time back add on to my anger and that so much has been taken from me. Things that I cannot get back. My household unit started falling apart, issues that they were going through in their marriage. Just around 17, I had to make the decision that it was probably best for me to move out the house and live on my own and finish up high school because I couldn't be responsible for myself and for my parents. And I don't believe at that time my parent was able to really be responsible for me, for her to be okay for herself. Worked on trying to finish up high school. To me, it was still a big deal to finish high school because on my dad's side of the family, a lot of them never graduated from high school. They didn't even finish, you know, middle school. And I wanted to make sure that I walked the stage. I knew that if I didn't finish high school, that I was going to have an even harder life than I could ever possibly imagine. Going through the last couple of years of school, with really no support, just getting through life, feeling absolutely alone. And I remember having amazing teachers, amazing principals that would make sure that I had lunch money or that I went on field trips and got to live and enjoy things of high school that were going to be memories for me on field trips or senior prom night. And I didn't want to go to prom. I felt like that was just so beneath me, like let the kids enjoy that. But I have serious responsibilities and once school's over, I'm already dealing with my responsibilities. So it's not like I'm waiting for the end of school and yay, we get to start being adults. No, it was already here. It was now. So for me, I didn't want to go to a dance. I didn't see any purpose of it. And to my teachers, it was a big deal that I was there and that I enjoyed it and that I had those memories of being a teenager, even if it was just for a few hours. I remember them convincing me to come because they said that they needed help. So I was always of service. That's where I felt more the comfortable, you know, and I wanted to be needed because I feel like everything else in my life, I never fit in. So they told me they needed help with setting up and tickets and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I'll come and help. I'm not going to attend. They tricked me into putting on a dress because they said if I was going to be there to help, I at least need to dress up. And one of my teachers gave me this beautiful gown to put on. And by the time I got, okay, where do I help? They were like, we didn't need you to help. Everything's already taken care of. Your friends are over there. Go and have fun. I did. I had a great time. I'm glad that I did not miss it. And I'm glad that I had people that loved and cared about me enough to make sure that I was going to have that memory. So I was grateful for these people, these adults that were in my life that were there to take care of me and just make sure that I stayed on the path to you graduating. Do you keep in touch with them, those teachers? I do. I do. Every couple of years, I'll reach out. I don't live that far away from the school that I graduated high school from. And I'm actually been trying to get my daughter in so she will be a legacy going into the school for high school. I stayed around in the area. It gave me some sense of hope having them around me. High school's over now. 
it's just me by myself. I can you know? and that. My parents were going through serious marital issues like the whole time, but definitely in high school. And I lived at school. I yeah. had terrible grades because I didn't like being home and being quiet and doing my homework. So I would just get C's and B's. I had like a B plus average because my my English teacher, Mrs. Backus, who's amazing. I had her like for three years in a row because I was always in honors and she just was always the honors teacher. I remember sophomore year, she's like, I don't know if your parents are paying attention, but you, you're you not going to get into NYU if you just have a C average. She's like, you're going to have to ramp it up because you only have two years left. And I was like, thank you. I'll never forget that conversation. And because of her, I got my grades up enough that when I got the audition and got in because of my talent and all the crazy extracurricular activities and awards and scholarships I won for the talent part, they were like, you're going to be on probation. But, but that was the kind of thing where the adults in my life were my teacher. And like you, I went to public school and I'm so grateful. People put down public school, but I'm telling you, they are some of those teachers are the heroes of the entire world. No, absolutely. They're, they're superheroes. They really are. I mean, and for me, they were. I have, you know, three of them that up to this moment, I am so grateful and so humbled that they loved me enough as my teacher to care if I was going to graduate or not, to care if I had somewhere to sleep or something to eat. I'm always grateful for them. Um, I actually auditioned for AMDA in New York. I was really big into performing arts. Um, but unfortunately, because everything was so hard, my grades weren't where they needed. I remember being at the auditions and them telling me that it was just based on talent. I would have a scholarship right then and there and be ready to go. And they just needed to wait for my GPA to come in. And I remember getting the letter telling me that unfortunately my GPA was way too low. There was an opportunity for me to re-audition in the springtime, but I had to attend a couple of classes and get my GPA up, you know, going to college and getting a couple of grades up. And then I could re-audition. And I just remember thinking, this is never going to happen. This was my only, my one shot to get out of here. And it was gone. And I just kept on working. When did you get into dancing? So it was just a little bit around the, the, the time of getting out of high school. Out of high school, hanging out, partying, drinking underage, hanging out with people that I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. I was actually drugged and raped and felt so disgusted with myself. Felt so upset that... Once again, I'm the victim again. I'm putting myself in positions again that I didn't need to be in. And this person I did know, it was a friend of my older brother. And I remember thinking, I didn't want him around me. I didn't want him to look at me. And he would pop up everywhere. Being homeless at times, a couple of years later, I had to move into a house that he was living at. I remember just like thinking like, I just need to close my room and, and lock my door and stay away from him because I have nowhere else to go. And this was my only option. And I remember at times waking up at night and him being in my room, sitting on my bed, looking at me and talking to me. While upstairs, my brother sleeping with his wife and his girlfriend's upstairs. And here he is in my room, three o'clock in the morning and just kept on thinking like, I'm not safe anywhere. And I finally, I couldn't do that either. And I moved back out of my brother's house and back on to living with people, sleeping in my car and just anywhere that I felt that I could be safe by myself. A year after high school, I wind up getting a job offer to go work at a local strip club as a waitress, as a shot girl. And I decided, you know what? Anything's better than what I'm doing right now. I need to make more money. I want to save up and go to college. And just to put it in perspective. When I graduated from high school, 
I went and tried to apply for college. And I try to apply for private colleges and, you know, go into like broadcasting. But every time it came down to financial aid, you need a signature from your parent, you know, your guardian, your, your parents. So in the state of Florida, until you're 24, you are deemed as a dependent of your parents and they need to sign for you for your financial aid. And I kept on telling them, I'm going to pay it. I don't have parents. I mean, even though I had one parent that was still alive, but I, there was going to be no way possible to do that. And they kept on telling me that, unfortunately, they couldn't do the financial aid. And I'm like, well, what's the other option? And they were like, the only other options you have are to become emancipated. Or um, if you have a child, then you become independent at that time. And I'm like, so you're telling me that either I have to go and have create a life for you to consider me to be an adult or go to court and find money and emancipate myself from my parent. You know, two things that one, I have no idea how to do. And the other, I don't want to have a kid right now. You know, I didn't want to have kids at all. I don't want to bring a child into this life. <laughs> you know, I couldn't imagine bringing a child and having them endure even a quarter of what my life was. So both options were completely off the table. So there was no college for me no support for me. So only a high school diploma, the jobs that I'm going to get are working in restaurants and, and very low paying jobs, but it was okay. I kept on working and then I got offered that job and I figured I can keep both jobs, save up as much money as possible, get myself a new car and start going to school. And the job and was waitressing at a club, waitress. in our club, like an adult establishment started getting involved in that culture working at night. And once you're there, everything's a party. That ambiance and you're hanging out with people do create a family within that lifestyle. They were my family. I did something. I needed family. There was an opportunity. I had a friend that came in and she needed to work. She wanted to be a waitress and there were no other waitress jobs. There was only a dancer job. I made the decision that I was going to go and be a dancer and I would give her my job because I didn't want her dancing. I didn't want her to have to deal with the, the customer. And I figured I can deal with it. I'm tougher. And I gave her my waitress job and I moved over and became a dancer. From there, that was it. That was, I was in that life. And it just kept on going. That vulnerability blocks are coming down and people are sharing more of their story and what they're going through. And that's when I started realizing that these weren't all just women and girls that were trying to go to college or looking for a better life for themselves. They were people that have been taken away from their homes and put to work. People that are working for men that have them there. You know, and they're in control of their money and they're in control of what they wear and how long they're working and what they eat and that they're not free. I kept on thinking, what? You're not free. Like, you can't just leave from here and go wherever you go. You you give your money to somebody. And I kept on asking them, like, I wanted them to tell me more. I wanted to understand their, their reasoning for that, you know, because I couldn't imagine giving somebody control over me. Um, I fought so hard my entire life to make sure that nobody had control over me. You know, if they couldn't keep me safe, nobody had control over me. And now I'm hearing these women tell me their stories that they were just promised the world, better life, promised protection, but yet they weren't happy. They were suffering and then they were broken. It made me so sad, you know, but we were a family. So we were all so close. I kept on thinking, I need to figure out a way of protecting them. Let's get this straight. There's a bunch of women working at a club as waitresses. You're there too. You have the same job. Then you switch over to being a dancer. And all these dancers 
unlike you, are giving their money to someone else at the end of the night. There's some dancers that are giving their money to somebody else. So in our everyday sense, a pimp and a home. Pimps exist and they're out there and they have a couple of girls that, you know, live with them, that they have convinced that they're going to be safer with them. They all work together. They're going to have a great life. And these girls don't have anybody. Probably homeless, have probably left their families and, and want this picture-perfect life that they're seeing on TV and on social media and want to be wearing the Louis and wearing nice clothes and going on boats and promised all this. That's not the case. There might be one or two times where they'll get their nice things or, you know, it'll be a gift as an incentive. But the reality is, is that they work and whatever they make is given to their guy. And he does what he feels like is necessary to be done. And I did get to meet quite a few gentlemen that worked this industry, had their girls, and this was their business. I wanted to understand that more. I would have conversations with them and sit with them and hang out with them. And just, I wanted to be fully understanding of what was going on. Like, what's the trade-off? You know, I would hear what the trade-off for the women were, but what's the trade-off for the men? What is it that they're looking for? What is that sense of control and power that they want? What was it? Them being in control of things. Knowing that they were on top of it, not showing weakness in the industry, not showing weakness on the street. It was always a battle. You would see where there would be battles between different gentlemen, how many girls they had and who recognized their girls. You would see some of them that they would brand their women with tattoos of their names on their body. And it wouldn't be like a small marking. It would be a massive, you know, two foot marking on them with their names. So people understood that that belonged to them. Oh my God. It was almost like in the wild, claiming your territory and having the biggest territory possible. So other predators wouldn't mess with them. And they were preying on their insecurity. So as long as the girl showed weakness and I don't have anywhere else to go, well, can you be my daddy or my hero, uh, quote unquote, they would take that power and say, wait, you're gonna have to pay me to do that. Girls had no money, no autonomy. They drove with them and back to the club, it sounds like, and because they couldn't afford a car. How many of these situations were actually beneficial mutually for both parties? None that I ever saw. And anyone that worked there, were they like you, where they were just actually trying to make an honest living, so to speak, to make money? Yeah, I mean, there's a mix, right? It's a mix of life, so... That type of industry, you're going to have a mix of everything. You're going to have people that really, this is their profession. This is what they're doing because they chose to do it. They enjoy it. You know, they travel, they, they get highlighted at different clubs all over the country. They're making really good money. They're investing. You have the ones that are paying for school and, and get just getting through this just so they can make it. Do you, you think that those ones- people make it out okay? Do you think there's anyone that should go into that industry? Like, are you in support of those people? I think that we all find our own ways, right? And we all know what we're willing to bear with. How many times have people worked in office jobs where for sure, it's for just sure. as toxic, you know, or it's just as dangerous? I have um, a friend who has an Instagram called Wall Street Confessionals, and it's just a bunch of people anonymously saying what happened in the office on Wall Street. And absolutely. I have a friend who's um, he, she, she has jump seat confessionals and I'm not supposed to say her name, but she, she's a flight attendant and people just anonymously post, uh, or she, she gets them and then she posts what they say. Um, and they have to keep it anonymous because they'll all lose their jobs. So, I mean, I've, I've been in the entertainment industry for the last 20 years. There's only certain kinds of casting directors I'll work with and certain kinds of movies that I'll audition for. Cause 
I am terrified genuinely <laughs> by certain aspects of the entertainment industry. But getting back to you. So I hear that. I'm just saying there's a little part of me that wants to try to protect people from trafficking in general. There are a part of you that kind of wishes that the entire industry would go away. I don't know if I can say that. So we discussed earlier about people, you know, looking for help. And maybe finding sometimes where they fit in, right? Like that isolation sort of leads sometimes to to bad things. Unfortunately, in this day and age, a lot of uh, things that are missing, just feeling connected, that industry sometimes offers. It's not always sexualized. And I know a lot of people think that like um, this industry, it's, it's everything is sexualized. But sometimes it's not sexualized. Sometimes it's it's actual deep, meaningful conversations that are being had, but in a very intimate and freeing place. It's weird to say that, but once you're in the industry, you really know that that is true. Some people need to have that space where they walk in and they're feeling good about themselves. They're feeling that they're in control of things, but then they wind up sitting down and having a two hour conversation where they've been able to express you know, all these things that are happening to them without any judgment, almost like uh, like a therapy session uh, per se, you know, but where they might not feel comfortable going in to a therapist and sitting down. They have somebody that's there listening to them. So uh, there are benefits that come out of it. I've seen uh, couples that go in and their their marriage is amazing and, and they've, they're bonded, you know, and that's what spice up their marriage, you know. There's different aspects of it but um you don't think that could happen in a different setting where people have their clothes on i think people are looking for so many different things and i know that society has a problem with it like let's say working as a dancer or working in that industry doesn't make you a prostitute but prostitution is our oldest form of employment here prostitution comes from the biblical times taking from somebody and raping somebody and and putting control over them, you know, like that's where it's the dangerous part of it. But that has always happened. We have always taken people against their will and shipped them off and and made them turn them into slaves, turn them into concubines. You know, there this is something that has existed with humanity. Does that I mean we he, should make it continue just because it's been happening forever? Or? No, not make it continue. Obviously we're trying to end it and we're trying to stop it. This industry alone isn't what's causing trafficking. People can be trafficked and not be in the adult entertainment industry. People could be trafficked and be pretty much the slaves or the maids of the house. And you wouldn't know it. You know, they're they're in somebody's house and they're out of sight, out of mind. Nobody will ever see them. You know, they're in somebody's basement. Kids, when they're trafficked, they're not put straight into the adult entertainment industry. They're sent from a house to house, facility to facility and you don't see them. You're working at this club, you're a waitress, then you become a dancer. And then how do you get into the house where most of the dancers are? So by that time, I had already created relationships with the people that I was working with and um, with their guys. I get asked if I could continuously watch over a certain group of girls. While they're working at any club that I'm working at, watch out for them, make sure that they're okay, make sure that they're not taking, you know, over drugging themselves, make sure that they're getting paid, make sure that they're safe from the guys and just watch out for the girls. And for me, it was like, I was their guardian angel. You know, I would always just watch their, their back and make sure that they were okay. It wasn't really about what I was being asked to do by the gentleman. It was more like I could protect these girls and just watch out for them. But that just continued to grow my relationship with their 
their guy with their pimp. So one day I was invited to a couple of parties, hanging out with them. And I did. I, I went out. I hung out with them. Obviously, I had my independence and I had control of what I was doing with my life. But I also knew that their mission was to try to get me. Their mission was to try to get me on board with what they're doing. And to me, everything was such a game. Like everything was like, oh, you guys think that I'm that weak minded or I'm going to fall into place and that's not going to happen. I just wanted to continue to have access to the girls and watch out for them and be there to protect them if I could. And one day I was sent to one of their locations, one of their houses, dropped off and left alone with the girls. So I just pretty much got to house and cleaned up and picked up and just try to help out. There were a lot of girls that didn't even want to talk to me because there's also a battle between them when now new girls are being introduced to the household that there's going to be a new favorite. I didn't want to be a new favorite. I didn't want to be anything involved. I just wanted to be there to help out. And I remember this day I'm you know, I'm sitting in the house and I'm cleaning and I just kept on hearing somebody cry and cry and cry. And I walked in and, you know, I wanted to see what was going on. I remember the house just having mattresses laid on the floor and each one of the girls had like their bags, stuff all over the floor, but nobody had like rooms and um, bedroom sets. And it wasn't like an actual like living space. They were just there. And I walked into this room and I talked to this girl and she couldn't speak to me in English because she only spoke Spanish. So I spoke to her and I asked her what her name was and you know, what was the problem? And she started to explain to me that she was tricked and she was brought here from Puerto Rico. She was told she was going to be a star and they were going to help her get all these, you know, her things together and have a better life. And that she was going to have this great job, That that's not the case that she's been here for a couple of weeks now. And she's been locked in this room and she has no idea what's going on, scared. And she's never lived anywhere else than her parents' house. And she doesn't have any way of talking to them. And that he took away her passport and her license. She has no ID. She has no proof of who she is and she doesn't know where to go. She's really scared. And I remember just getting this heart sinking feeling that this was not right. She did not want to be there. I jumped into action. I couldn't just leave her there. I had to do something about it. I told her I was going to take her with me. She did not want to be there. This is not what she chose for herself. I was going to take her with me. And I told her to grab anything that she thought she needed. And I was going to get her out and we were to call her parents. And I did. I put her into my car. I left that house. I got on the phone with her father and I explained to him that I had his daughter with me. She was safe, that I had just taken her out of a house, you know, with um, prostitutes and pimps. I knew that I was putting my life at risk, but I felt that I couldn't leave this child, somebody's child, locked in a room. She had no idea what was going on. How old was um, she? She had just turned 18. Like, they're humble. You know, she was from the countryside. It, she was so naive to what was going on, and I just felt for her. Explaining it to her dad that she was there, that she was going to be safe, he was heartbroken. He was so scared for his daughter's life and just kept on thanking me so much. I promised him, I'm going to get her on a plane back to you, and she'll be okay. They were able to get an ID sent over. We bought a plane ticket, and I dropped her off at the airport and shipped her back. Where was she for those few days? With me. And the guy didn't know? Well, nobody knew where I lived. So I didn't go to work and she just stayed with me. And then I got her out. And then after she left, I did return back to work. Like whatever's going to happen is going to happen, but I got to keep continue to work. It was scary, but at the same time, I did not care. I knew that I needed to do that and I needed to protect her and whatever was going to happen. I would say I wasn't scared of him. Um, I've had worse things happen to me in my life and I wasn't scared of them. So I wasn't going to stop now. You know, I, I, 
did run into him a couple of times afterward. He just sort of like played it off like, oh, I didn't need her anyways. She wasn't going to do anything for me anyways. And of like, really got some balls to have done this. Sort of stayed in our own lanes. I just continued to do what I need to do. Um, shortly after that, I did get offered a job position outside of the, the club. And I decided to go for it because anything else was going to be better than what I was currently doing. And what happened to that guy? Did he ever get arrested? I don't know. I sort of removed myself from all of it. I know that a couple of his associates did wind up getting arrested and getting locked up. So then you get into the real world, whatever, the working world. And outside of there, you were working hard in there, but you got out and you were how old in your early 20s? Uh, so I was 19 going on 20. Yeah. So going everything happened within a short, like two years span. And then I get ready to start working in my current industry, which was construction. Wow. So I wind up having a conversation with a customer. Um, and we just kept on talking about me working on cars, working on, um, you know, racing and that I had a passion for it, that my dad was a mechanic. And he asked me if I ever was interested in working on construction equipment. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that really entitles, but sure, you know, if it's mechanics, I'm always willing to learn. Um, and they told me to come in and, you know, come in on Monday, they would interview me with the manager and we'll see from there. And I just, there's only two ways that this can go. Either it's a real opportunity or it's crap, but either way, I'm not going to miss out if it's an actual opportunity. So I showed up. And they were surprised that I showed up and I sat down with the manager I interviewed and he just looked at me and he goes, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I'm like, absolutely. If you have an actual job for me, I'm ready. And he's like, you start on Monday, come in on Monday and we're going to start you entry level and you'll go from there. And that's how it was. In 2005, I started my career and I started learning everything about the construction equipment. I washed them, I organized the yard, I learned how to drive them. And then little bit by little bit, they started bringing me into the mechanic side of it, of doing the smaller equipment and then the heavier stuff. And I absolutely fell in love with what I was doing. And it was tough, but I already had so much experience dealing with tough stuff. I just knew that I was going to have a better life. And I, if I worked really hard, I can get out of the black tunnel that I was in. And I just continued to work and work and work. And I haven't stopped. It has been a journey for the last 15 years of being in this industry and learning so many different things um, and getting to where I'm at today. So let's break this down. How do you start forgiving your brother for letting that guy stay in his house while he was doing this to you? How do you forgive your mom for letting you leave at 17? How do you forgive your dad for, it sounds like if he didn't take his own life, he basically took it by drinking too much. Do you, how do you forgive the pedophile, both in your family and also the one that got out of jail? How do you forgive? That's what I want to know. For my family side of it, um, I've never felt that I've needed to forgive them for anything. I feel like my family was always just doing the best they can do. Like me and my brother, we were just trying to survive, right? And my brother didn't know what was going on. I didn't tell him. I didn't want to to burden him with all that. And my mom was surviving her life, you know, being in her 40s and going through all her heartbreaks and just mentally ch checking out. And it was a lot for her. There were periods of time where she was amazing, where she was such an inspiration in corporate America and this strong woman. And then there were times where she, I felt like she was failing me, but at the same time, she didn't know that 
that's what was going on or that's what was affecting me the most because she couldn't see it. Her darkness was too much in her period. She couldn't do more than what she was doing. I love her just the way that she is. Now I fully understand and I love her and we've had amazing ups and downs and I've been able to learn more about what she's going through and how I can help her. But it's just always taught me to set my boundaries. Even though I love my people and, and everybody that's around me, I set really hard boundaries with a lot of people in my life because it is where I am safe. And at the end of the day, it's, I need to be safe. It's not about people's feelings. It's not about how they feel it. If I've pushed them away, it's me needing to be safe because I'm always going to take care of people and I'm always going to worry about how I can help fix and how I can be of service, but I need to be first. I need to be safe in order to be of service and benefit for anybody else. And my dad, like, he didn't know any better either. You know, that was his culture, his lifestyle. He did quit towards the end. He he quit drinking, trying to get better. He was trying to get healthy. Um, but I think the damage had already been done and he wound up dying of a heart attack. Um, unfortunately, he suffered a second heart attack, um, didn't make it. But I was okay knowing that my dad worked really hard the last couple of years. You know, I felt like he was working so hard to be around and still wind up losing his life. It's hard to accept that people have hurt me. But at the same time, I don't want to be the victim. It's not about them because I need to be the one that's making the decision for my life, how I'm going to live it. And if I'm constantly worried about forgiving somebody or reliving the story or, you know, being in those moments of trauma, then I'm never going to heal and I'm never going to grow. And they're always going to have control over my life. As survivors, we're in control of our lives. For sure. But I think the hardest part for me listening to your story was knowing that there was a part of your dad's journey that put alcoholism before hanging out with you. Oh, absolutely. You didn't create that. I'll just see him in the summers. I mean, your mom was actually very brave to send you there for the whole summer for even part, even for more than a day, knowing that this guy was irresponsible but his irresponsibility was a choice. It was partly his choice. It might've been alcoholism, but it also was a choice of his. And that's what I mean. Um, I'm not saying you should hold on to it. I just think it's sometimes hard um, as the listener, but also as the, of course, even more so as the person going through it or growing through it, that the, you know, the people we love when you're saying, oh, it was taken away from me. I mean, part of the person taking away from you was him. It wasn't just God saying, okay, it's your time. It was his own choice. And that's what I was saying to forgive because that's that's hard. Is there any way people can get a hold of you if they're listening right now? Do you have any books coming out? So yes, if anybody wants to follow my career, I'm on Instagram at JekoJen um, Instagram. They can send me an email at lionlegacycoaching.com. I do have my life coaching practice and I am also involved in the National Association of Women in Construction here in Fort Lauderdale. And I will be the upcoming president for the new year for the chapter. And I'm going to be focusing on a lot of high school girls and college girls and the next generation of girls that don't know that there's an opportunity in the construction industry because they don't know that there's another way out, you know, where they can start working and from there build their career and get back to school um, and financially be able to support themselves. So that's going to be uh, my mission coming up. That's what I was going to say. You mentioned a couple of times, like that was my only chance going to New York. That was my only chance going to college. I don't think that, that you would say that today. I think it's 17 and 18 based on what you've been through, but I'm glad you didn't become an actor, at least for now, because look how much you've accomplished. And you did find that you had amazing other opportunities 
besides working as a dancer, you know, and maybe would older, would 35 year old Jen, what would she say to the younger one who thought, oh, this is my only way out? Trust that there are going to be people that come into your life sometimes and that are going to give you a hand and it's going to be genuine. Don't ever limit yourself. I always take life that I just jump without knowing what's going to be underneath me. And if I fall and get hurt, I can get back up and keep on going. But I'm going to jump because what could be just over the hill might be the biggest blessing of my life. And I don't want to miss it. Whatever traumas that you have ever dealt with, it's not forever. And you will be stronger. And there are so many blessings waiting for you just around that that next jump. You are married, right? I am married. I've been married for eight years now. I have a 13-year-old daughter. She is the biggest blessing of my life. My family unit is really strong. We have all healed together over the years. And I'm blessed to have amazing friends and organizations around me. Just keep on sharing my story and my mission. Well, I'm super uber duper impressed with you. I hope that this is not the last time that we get to work together. And I can't wait to see what else comes for you. Have a great day, Jen. We will be in touch. And thank you so, so much for sharing your beautiful soul with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Here are some nuggets of wisdom from this episode. Jennifer says, sometimes we don't want to retell our stories of abuse because not only does it take us back there emotionally, but it can make us feel like a victim again and keep us in a dark spot. A lot of people choose not to speak about the darkness that happened to them because they would rather try to pretend like it didn't happen or it'll just go away if we don't talk about it. It is so necessary to tell your story to prevent others from going through it and to be aware of what is out there and how to prevent it. Again, if you see something, please say something. If you know someone who is currently in an abusive situation, someone who may be in a very dangerous job that might be hurting them physically, emotionally, or they might be hurting someone else, see if you can have the courage to sit down with them and talk about it. Even one conversation, or if you don't feel comfortable, see if you can refer them to someone else. The national hotline for human trafficking is 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. Always.